Not allowed to Google it. In honor of a new year, remember the old one? Name one of the top 10 movies of 2020 based on theatrical gross. Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I have looked this up at some point, and this might be the number one movie, Bad Boys for Life. That is correct. Yeah! Hey. Love a quiz. Is this domestic? Yes. Theatrical domestic gross? theatrical gross. Oh, okay. Because uh, I'm at Patches. I was going to guess the Demon Slayer movie, which I know has like outgrossed every Ghibli film in Japan. Um, anime. Uh, but I'm actually, I'll, I'll say The Invisible Man. That is technically in the top ten, number nine. Yes. Uh, that came out in theaters. I'm Dave with the, with the Seven, and hilariously, I'll always remember Sonic the Hedgehog, and looking it up, it was uh, number three. Uh, Katie was right with the number one, Bad Boys for Life. Yeah. David. Uh, yeah, I saw, when I saw Bad Boys for Life, the man sitting two rows in front of me shat his pants in the middle of the movie and uh, refused to leave. So wow. that that's... Did it oh, smell? Absolutely reeked. I mean, it was just <laughs> you can do that insufferable. <laughs> I miss movie theaters. Uh, and, but I was, you know, critics. Yeah, bring back the movie-going experience. <laughs> through rain or snow uh, or, or or the aroma of shit, a film critic has to stick it out. I was there on business. Um, yeah, I should have known that, that we were cursed then. Uh, yeah, you guys have already named all the obvious ones, but I believe that Pixar's, uh, Onward got a few weeks in theaters before COVID swept it away into home video. Uh, it did. Yeah. Which but, was but it is number to... 11. Oh, wow. wow. Oh, wow. Uh, you would think a movie about two, two, I haven't seen it, but like two elf boys trying to find their dad's pants or something. Their, dad, their dad's torso. Oh, they have the pants, from I what I understand. This, this is the last thing that I started cackling about uh, on a recent episode of this podcast. It was something Onward Pants related. It was right. It was talking about the Disney, the, the Sorcerer's Arena game, and, like wanting to collect the, the dad's pants as a character. Um, I will never see that movie, I hope. It's, <laughs> it is wild to me that I have, I'm realizing it's the only Pixar movie I haven't seen in like I have not seen it either. I ha- have hovered above it on Disney Plus so many times and just like I is can't, today the I day no no, is today no the day interest. I figure out where that man's torso went? Well maybe we'll pick onward for this podcast. Uh, well so if onward future, didn't crack the top ten I'm assuming that Emma didn't either or else you know I would have been going around all last fall saying that Emma was one of the top 10 highest grossing films of the year. And I really That's correct. Yep. It. Yep. <laughs> oh, I mean, we can keep question. going. Okay. Or, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, Dave, name, name what was in fourth and fifth. Wait, uh, I have another guess. Two. I have another guess before two. we do it. The Harrison yeah, Ford uh, Call of the Wild. Ooh, Ooh, the Call of the Wild is number 10. Yeah. <laughs> number 10. This is very family Is Tenet number oh, two? Oh, Tenet. I forgot that was an option. Uh, Tenet is not um, uh, no, not Tenet, on this not in the top yeah, ten. Tenet only grossed like wow, you know, thirty something. Even in twenty twenty, it wasn't enough. What else came out in January between Bad Boys and Sonic, which was like top? Oh, of Birds of Prey. Hmm. Birds of Prey, uh, was Prey right? is in there. Yes. And then uh, there's also rollovers. So you got the Star Wars, oh, you got no, Jumanji. No, that's a, that's oh, a box office mojo. Nineteen seventeen. Yeah, no, you don't do. Nineteen seventeen. No, 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 no. I, I am very strong with Katie here, and in that light, onward, definitely gets kicked over in the top ten because you're taking out Jumanji, you're taking out Star Wars, you're taking out uh, Little Women. Unfortunately, great movie. Uh, so onward is in the top ten. This is actually this is a debatable stat. I mean, th- I know this is our lightning round; and it's the quick part of the show. <laughs> but um, 
You know, Rain Man was the highest grossing movie of the year it came out, like whatever, 1988 or something. But only because it came out in December and then dominated the box office through the right. following This is the American so, Sniper. The American uh, Sniper Guardians of the Galaxy. Exactly. Yes, the American Sniper phenomenon. Um, but so wh- why does that, why do we Because it's the year that it came out. Like, I don't know. The well, it was really like... in the context of Dave's question. It was really, we're talking about 2020 movies. Um, and so, Top 10 2020 movies based on theatrical gross. Yeah, I well, don't. I don't like the box office mojo like for many reasons. In this the way that you them. read that question, twenty twenty <laughs> movies. I mean, you're talking about twenty twenty movies, mm. um, not movies that happen to be carried over into twenty twenty. Anyway, I think what's really important here is that Little Women is a masterpiece, Thanks. and uh, I w- Little Women was twenty. Yeah, and I gave, yeah. I think, twenty five million of its seventy million dollar box. Congratulations office. on being a twenty five millionaire. You or know I guess not a, anymore because you spent. I only had twenty five million, and I spent it all on, <laughs> on movie tickets to see. Even though I had the screener DVD, yeah. and I had a newborn at the time, but in, I really, I still defend that decision. I think it was worth it. Yeah, it might have been the last movie I saw in the theater. Better than I cats. Thirty five millimeter, yeah, re release. Anyway, show. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain, and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It is episode 332. It's Pandemic 44. It's the week of Wednesday, January 20th, 2021. That's the day that in 1982, Ozzy Osbourne did something that I think I had convinced myself was a myth. He really did bite the head off a bat. It was in Des Moines, Iowa, which is quite a place to bite the head off a bat. Yeah. You guys know what I mean, Bats though? everywhere. Where, like, you're, you, like, your that youth is, like... That was the day like... Ozzy Osbourne became <laughs> well, no, president. I mean, the Ozzy Osbourne biting that was, off of that was very much, like, the neighbor from Wonder Years becoming Marilyn Manson or, like, taking out yeah. his own rib so he could Yeah, his it was, like, a myth. Yeah, but, but, you but know... But this one was real. If you want to bite the head off a bat, you can bite the head off a bat. But that it's is... a bit more feasible, though. That is how you get COVID. So, <laughs> yeah, um, it was... Yeah. <laughs> hits, hits a little bit differently these days. <laughs> Oh, um, boy. Well, this is our first episode of the year that isn't a top 10 episode. So I guess, first of all, uh, Happy New Year. We're back. Uh, I hope New you enjoyed Year, the top guys. 10 episode as much as I did. Uh, yeah, we, we did a Wonder Woman episode. All right. We well, okay. Episode. Happy Happy New Year. Happy almost. Um, well, know, as you listen to this, I guess the Biden administration will have begun, knock on wood. Uh, so happy that New Year. <laughs> Listen, I don't want to. <laughs> yeah. We don't. We don't yeah. Happy let's, New let's Administration. Just, we don't count our chickens. Um. Let's not let's not predict yeah. anything. Um, David, do we have any reviews that don't yes. involve predicting the future? We do. Well, I can't promise that they do not involve <laughs> that, but uh, we do seem to have two quick reviews. Uh, I can see all of them without having to expand, so uh, we could probably read them both real quick. Uh, my favorite podcast, as uh, says Alex DJM. I was born without legs in Russia and abandoned by my parents at birth, forcing me to spend my first sixteen years in a Russian orphanage. So naturally, David Ehrlich is one of my favorite film critics and my favorite member of this podcast. Though every member of this podcast is impressive and worth listening to if you love cinema. I've been living in the U.S. for 10 plus years, having graduated law school and all, but I love film so much and this podcast is perfect. I don't really know where to begin with this review, uh, but I'm choosing to take it all at face value. Um, I, I have heard in the past about my overwhelming popularity in Russian orphanages, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and that is where most of my audience comes from. Yeah, I think so. Um, it's that and Brazil. Those are my two key demographics. Um, 
And uh, I just shout out to everyone out there who's listening in the Russian orphanage. Um, and thank you to Alex DJM. Uh, I hope wherever you are from, wherever life has taken you, it's all going well. Kodiak JS says Katie Rich did nothing wrong. That's right. Uh, I don't know what this is about. <laughs> That's I have right. a feeling I do know what it's about. <laughs> I hope this is about Fox Catcher. I, I have a feeling that Matt Patches is on the right track, but let's see. <laughs> <laughs> Love the show. Love you all. Hope you discover many more ways to surprise end the podcast. Sorry. Hope you discover many more ways to surprise end the podcast in your future. Ooh, not me. Mm, going to disagree with you there. Uh, <laughs> I've been listening to Fighting in the War Room for about three years now, and that means I've listened to about three years of David Ehrlich cracking jokes about a movie called Foxcatcher that I had never heard of. After he- which I think speaks to, obviously, the forgettability <laughs> of Foxcatcher in this culture. But anyway, after hearing that joke twice in the first 10 minutes of the 2020 Top 10s episode, I decided to go back to where it all began. I listened to the 2014 Top 10s episode. Katie's impassioned speech inspired me to take the plunge. Today, I watched Foxcatcher. Wow. <laughs> hey. I love I thought it. it was- I thought it was fine. <laughs> Is it the best movie of 2014? No, I don't think so. But it's a fine movie, and you know what? It's great to be fine. Let it go, David. Wow. Ooh. Oh, wait. I I was going to bring up Foxcatcher separately from this. Can I do like a quick Foxcatcher set? You're going to make it a lot harder for me to let it go. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Just that there's this article in the New York Times about Cleet Keller, who is the former Olympian who was at the yes. Capitol riots, and it just reminded me deeply of Foxcatcher, of a former Olympian who didn't know what to do with his life and uh, went down the wrong path. So just read it. That's Steve all. Steve Carell is going to uh, completely whiff at getting an Oscar nomination by playing, by playing Trump Keller in this version. Five years from now. <laughs> no, Channing Tatum was the Cleet Keller. God, David, did you Channing even see Foxcatcher? Jesus. I, I, sadly, I did. I remember. <laughs> I remember like how itchy I felt in that screening room, <laughs> just like every minute feeling like a short eternity. Uh, and, and then the guy in the row in front of me took a huge shit, <laughs> no, I and I had to stay there and watch Foxcatcher. Uh, that was at the Sony, the Sony building, which no longer. I mean, great, the building exists. Great screening no room. Sony, great screening room. But they had to raise. Had, Sony had to evacuate the building permanently after. The stank of that screening. Wow. Uh, anyway, wow. Foxcatcher, I will never let it go. Not as long as this podcast has not actually ended. But thank you for your input, JS. Thank you, anyone else out there, uh, whatever country's orphanage you may have grown up in um, or have been listening to the show. We are piped into orphanages throughout the world uh, as an added cruelty to children. Uh, <laughs> let's stop talking about lowest. orphanages. Uh, yes, let, let's. I thought it was a beanpole reference at first, but no one was 16 in that movie. Um, but yes, thank you for listening to the show. Please go on iTunes, leave us a review. We'll read it clearly live on the air, unedited, uncensored, raw. Uh, That's right. Fuck it, we'll do board. it live. iTunes. Fuck it, we'll do it live. We'll be legends. The original legends, not the Fire Festival guys, but Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. Uh, all right, we have all seen at this point Promising Young Woman, which is out in theaters and I believe is now also out on for rental at home. I think it, it just it just yeah. became available. It's like a VOD rental on Amazon, I think. Uh, no, Ooh, it I would think it's be on Hulu. yeah. No, Hulu. It's PVO. Oh, no, not Hulu. Uh, Nomadland Hulu. is the one that's coming to Hulu. Wow, we're really uh, indicating yeah. why it is Nomadland no, is coming. No, to Nomadland is coming to Hulu. Coming it's a Hulu. Disney Disney film. In some crazy way. Well, well, wouldn't that mean it was going to Disney Plus? 
Uh, oh, it'll be a Disney be, Plus star internationally. It would be hilarious if Nomadland uh, just showed up on Disney Plus it, it one would be day. Very funny. Wanda, <laughs> like at the end of a WandaVision episode, it's <laughs> you like just get immediately up, Nomadland. Into Nomadland. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It is hard to know where movies are available these days. Promising a Woman can be rented via iTunes or whatever your platform of choice is. Uh, as Patches was saying just before this, uh, it premiered uh, Sundance about a year ago, which is the last time he saw it. So it's been around for a while. People have been talking about it for a while. And it's one of those movies that kind of makes so big a splash at Sundance that you feel like you have to pay attention to it. And I think even when the reviews have been mixed on it, which I think overall they have been like positive to mix. I think people like there are very few. Actually, no, that's not true. There are plenty of like unabashed like fans of it, but a lot of this it's provoked a lot of conversations. It's um, the directorial debut of Emerald Fennel, who plays Camilla on the crown, very close to my heart, um, and was the showrunner of Killing Eve season two. And it is uh, Carrie Mulligan in the lead role. And I think we've been firmly rooting for Carrie Mulligan on this show for a long time. I know uh, David has uh, Wildlife Forever. Wildlife Forever. Vote Forever. Um, and it's a really interesting movie. It's a uh, kind of this wild concept in which a woman whose best friend was kind of treated very horribly by a group of men. She's taking revenge on her behalf, basically, and spends her nights pretending to be super drunk so that men will pick her up and kind of pretend to be nice and taking her home, then try to take advantage of her, at which point she kind of snaps to attention and doesn't kill them, doesn't really physically hurt them, but just like thoroughly freaks them out, which they deserve um, because they're she being She puts the shitty. fear of God into them. Yeah, which, pretty uh, much. Yeah. Um, and she's kind of devoted her life to this at the expense of everything else and kind of lives like the entire aesthetic of the movie is very candy colored and unreal. But then she develops this kind of very authentic feeling relationship with this guy, Bo Burnham, a guy played by Bo Burnham. Um, and then the movie goes from there. And, and for me, the challenge of it is balancing those two tones of having this kind of surreality and this like very wild choice that she's made in her life and kind of try to teach her, treat her as a real person with real feelings. And I wasn't quite sure that it navigated all of that perfectly, but I find it so fascinating and fascinating to talk about that. I would tell many, many people to see it. Um, where do you guys land on that, on that spectrum? Uh, I enjoy it as I think, um, I don't know if it felt, it feels like, uh, the, the type of like smaller, uh, like, genre crime film that we would get in like the mid to late nineties, just from an extremely masculine point of view. Hmm. And so it's interesting to see like those types of storytelling tropes uh, and those types of situations uh, flipped on its head in a way that uh, I think really actively avoids the male gaze uh, in the way that it's like uh, shot because it's not like she's, not in sexy situations. It's just they these situations are like horrifying, but she's also in control. So you're talking so about the male gaze here and its absence in this. Yeah, case. yeah. The way we're forced to watch these encounters from a position as an audience where we know she's in control, but it's also disgusting, I think is uh, really, you know, it's a fantastic uh, way to like structure a film. I don't think it gets really super deep into any of the characters because I think it's structured to sort of be like this setup payoff uh, series of scenes, which isn't to say that I don't think Carrie Mulligan is like great in it, but I do think uh, in, in the, at the end of the film, it's sort of revealed that her character, um, I don't think we learn as much about a backstory as much as we learn about what her narrative purpose in the movie is as a, as an arc, I guess would be a mm -hmm. way to put it without spoiling it. 
Yeah, and we, we might get into spoilers at the end of this. Yeah. yeah to be fair. But I it's incredibly well cast and acted pretty much across the board. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, that, that's just synonymous for Alfred Molina is in it in a bit. Uh, Alfred <laughs> Molina movie, is in it. Any movie in which Alfred Molina shows up is, by definition, incredibly well cast. Uh, uh, you need to. Uh, this is a sidebar. Never mind. We'll talk about. We'll, we'll, oh, we'll yeah, talk about me, Alfred Molina later. <laughs> Clancy Brown's really good as like the father who's you know trying to uh, mm. cope with his. Oh, uh, no, I mean, I love Clancy Brown as an actor. I just felt like those. Uh, and increasingly so. I mean, for a guy who's been around so long, I find that he's only becoming like a more interesting screen presence. Even his screen presence hasn't even changed. I don't know. I just like, he like will walk into a show like Billions, which is really stale by the time he arrives and kind of spice it up just with his Clancy Brown energy. I mean, he did the same to a different degree on Lost once upon a time. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's but, a whole, I, I basically want to know more about all the side characters in this movie. But. Yeah, I, I just thought that the script let down, like, that was an underrealized element of it with her parents. And I think that, like, mm. casting such broad... Listen, I, I think this is a really fascinating and provocative movie and exactly the movie that Emerald Fennel... Fennel? I want to say Fennel, I think it's, Fennel I think it, sounds like too much of the food. I think it's Fennel. Whatever. Uh, Fennel, I'll say Fennel. Uh, I'm not, I have no opinion or knowledge, so I'm going to go with you. Um, but, uh, she, I, I think she is a very skilled filmmaker right out of the gate. I'm incredibly excited to see where she goes from here. Uh, I really like the, the candy aesthetic, uh, that she brings to this. And it does feel maybe because of that, a hop, skip and a jump away from a superhero movie of sorts, mm-hmm. uh, with her as Carrie Mulligan as an avenging angel. I mean, it's not far removed aesthetically from something like, um, birds of prey. Uh, but and it's it would be feasible if maybe a waste of her talents to imagine Emerald Fennell directing something like that uh, down the line. But uh, I I do wish that it had dug a little bit deeper, that it had been less satisfying. And I think there are people with whom this movie resonated very strongly who would uh, disagree, would say that it digs deep plenty. I would point them towards um, Alison Wilmore has written very well, I think, about the ending of this movie in particular, and I think really speaks to what works about the movie as a whole and maybe where it falls short and feels a little bit uh, shallow in some places. But I read it, I read a take, like, I think it was our friend Esther Zuckerman who was saying that the movie, something that seemed valid to me, at least in theory, about how the movie isn't just about this, this vengeance, but is, of course, about, um, as the title would imply, uh, sarcastically, this, this woman's life that was derailed by her uh, friend's sexual assault or rape and eventual death and, uh, how, um, more than one life is sort of like the collateral damage of a terrible crime and, mm-hmm. um, how, like the, the violence that it inflicts upon people secondhand. Um, and I think that's true and, I think Esther was arguing that it was kind of a, the movie was very in touch with that and sort of acknowledging that uh, Carrie Mulligan's character is this really tragic figure. Um, and I think that's there for sure. I just wanted to, I wanted that to be more apparent in the text. I wanted that to be more towards the surface and more chewed upon so that it didn't feel, and I, I'll save the ending stuff for later, but like that it didn't feel so overwhelmingly cathartic 
in a sense for her that it didn't feel like an outright victory, that it was really, you got the sense more that the movie was actually engaging with the tragedy of it all. Um, yeah. It's, it's hard because she is a heroine and, you know, and that she's the protagonist of the movie, but also she's doing something that is like kind of morally good and with questionable tactics like many superheroes before her. But I, I think you're right that it gets kind of bogged down in like recognizing the tragedy of her life versus what she's accomplishing, quote unquote, with her with her plan. Because there, there's absolutely I, a tragedy I, in her. She's clearly a capable, a very intelligent person. She was doing, going, she was in med school. She was on her way to becoming a doctor. And even in her avenging, I mean, she's very resourceful forceful and clever and there's no uh limit to her intelligence and obviously it's misapplied not that i mean what she's doing i i, I in theory it's it's a positive thing i'm not like shaming yeah, her for I that mean, i'm just saying that like you know, the whole idea is she works at a coffee shop she's uh, devoted her life to this vengeance mission rather than living it on her own terms um and there is a sadness in that for her and i wish the movie grappled with it a little bit more directly even though it is there i wish that it was more. Yeah, the idea. There's a lot of ideas mm-hmm. in this movie. It's a very provocative film, but you wish it would. I mean, I, I I felt watching it like I I wanted it to go in any direction more than it does because it it has to split its time between mm-hmm. so many things, especially when Bo Burnham shows up and there's this kind of like leveling out for Carrie Mulligan's character, and she she has this romantic moment, and it almost feels like an entirely different movie and maybe could have gone in even a different direction with the Bo Burnham character and entangled there and or like maybe it should have been like Revenge that 2017 movie was like maybe but that's deliberate too right the the crossroads is is important I mean the idea that she is given an off-ramp from this uh life of of revenge that she's committed to this like score settling and right but I think it doubles back I think it gets clever and and it and it can't drill down into the the meaning of that mm-hmm. off ramp and to, and and to be about her and mm-hmm. her story. I mean, it's obviously when you're dealing her, she's avenging a, a, a victim of rape, and that part element of it is also kind of underbaked. I I, I I want more human elements in this movie, or I want them abandoned, and I want it to be more like exploitation and this mm. bubblegum aesthetic that she's chasing early on it's like that kind of fades away and then comes back hard yeah. in the end and it's just so many different types of movies at once and it's a great experiment and i almost wonder if she came at it from a of a tv perspective like this is an episode this is an episode this is an episode. i don't know i, I thought it flowed quality, but better yeah. than that uh i just i you know i i i have a lot of reservations about the ending but i think that there is like a clear trajectory that is going on here and that it's interrupted in interesting ways. Um, I'm just not sure for me that it was able to reconcile its sort of empowering uh, anarchic streak with some of the weightier traumas that are, you know, kicking below it. Um, mm-hmm. Carrie Mulligan certainly yes. helps. I mean, I think she's just a fantastic screen presence and she can do it all. Like she can swing back and forth to these different tones pretty seamlessly. She's the connective tissue. And I don't think many performers could do that or they would do it in a comic book way. Like you were saying, David, like a Margot Robbie or something. Her, I think Margot Robbie's uh, yeah, like, with the, Promising Young the, Woman because P- Variety was criticizing the movie look- for not having yeah, a Margot that was, Robbie. That was in it, wild. Um, I could imagine someone who's actually played comic book heroes uh, or anti-heroes taking this in a in a more two-dimensional way. Um, I mean, there's but, that great scene. There's Carrie a scene Mulligan, with Carrie Mulligan where she's um, at the end of, I think, her first date with Bo Burnham or like one of her first dates with Bo Burnham. Bo Burnham and there's a moment where they like might kiss or he invites her up to 
his apartment or something along those lines. And she like demures and walks away and it's because she has feelings for him and she's conflicted and uh, like the rage that channels through her in that moment. I don't know. I thought that that was really the epitome for me of what Carrie Mulligan was able to bring to mm-hmm. this performance. It was a really. Yeah. She takes a lot of like prolonged pauses in this movie where she is, the gears are turning. I like watching the gears turn for Carrie Mulligan when someone says something and she's either astonished because they're so dumb or they're so misogynistic and she's just ready to snap. Um, there's just a lot of psychology going on in her face throughout this movie because if the movie doesn't present um, the story with like tons of dimension or tons of history, like I don't feel like the script makes it apparent that, that there's tons of backstory here. I feel like Carrie Mulligan. Katie and Dave, uh, do you guys have more you want to say about the, the meat of the movie or should we transition to the ending? I think you kind of got to talk about the ending to. Right. Well, I just want to, it's like a segue to getting there. I think, you know, something that feels like a quibble given all of the things and the, the flame throwing this movie is doing and the ideas that it's playing with. Um, something that stuck in my craw both times I watched it is just how implausible some of the elements felt and not in a way that they could be that jives with the comic book yeah. of it all, yeah. but just like lo- logically the whole thing with um, the whole thing with uh, what is the name uh, uh, Connie Britton with her character and her daughter. I mean, there's just like in, in that five or 10 minute scene, there's so many logic holes as to like how she could have arranged that that it really took me out of it both times and that same element it comes back uh you know twofold or threefold in in the finale these are this is the most banal way of getting into this uh uh, the ideas (laughs) of what happens in the finale but like both times i'm like really trying to be on the movie's wavelength because i this is a film that for me anyway i really want to like it keeps bringing me to that point where i want to like it and like something as as simple as like her having a timed text message uh, after her death to go out where I was like, how do you do that? <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, maybe that's a dumb thing to say. And I, uh, it's very simple things to do, but there's just like something about how clean it is. This message going out and the foolproofness of her plan that just, it, it felt uh, very um, unhuman. It felt very like maniacal and very uh, uh, like uh, Rube Goldberg to a degree and not in a way that sort of, dovetailed with the, the deep human it doesn't feel like happening. raw revenge it, it gets feel it gets like something true has happened and infracted upon my life and i'm going to it, seek revenge it, it, it turns up the the like satire elements as soon as we're done with her dying basically so there's a really like drawn out violent suffocation shot and then the movie's like, and now we're gonna give you your superhero ending so it's like the first scene after that is like some other white dude coming in and being like, it's not your fault. You killed the stripper and we're going to burn the body. And then it like makes him nauseous. And then like the police go to confront Bo Burnham. And rather than like maybe throwing a complication into this movie where he like, you know, says to the cop, like, Oh my God, like my friends, I think my friends might've murdered my girlfriend and, you know, like maybe made a turn the movie needs to be simple enough to end quick enough for Ryan, his character. It's just, she made the right judgment about him. He's always mm-hmm. an asshole. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I like how they hold him to account for... Well, I mean, I, that, that's how it should go. But if we're talking about, like, a complicated movie dealing with, like, realities, like, him being punished even though he, like, you know, made a turn would have been a lot more interesting. 
Instead, we have to set up the <laughs> the time text messages that go off, and Alfred Molina somehow knows how to call the police just in time for the wedding. So it's, it's like, just a lot of business that distracts from the like the, the reality of what's happening. It's like an Ocean's here. Eleven, but you're explaining yeah. somebody's murder, so it's less <laughs> thrilling. <laughs> um, Katie, how did the end sit with you? I mean, kind of exactly what you guys are saying. I think by then I just felt so much like the realities of this movie had not meshed properly that like the person who was doing orchestrating all these plots is not the person who could have like an authentic relationship with Bo Burnham and like some of what Dave was saying about how like he is seems like a nice guy who did a shitty thing, but like he's still a person. And I think there's a lot of genius casting in this movie of like him and Adam Brody and Chris Romance Plus of like these like likable doofuses who we are trained to like but like the the acidity of the movie kind of never lets up like that cynicism about people but it's and also it, it like felt the... smothering by oh god bad use of word it, it felt <laughs> <laughs> but i mean in terms of the the judgment that it passes on bo burnham's character i mean the punishment seems to fit the crime because he is not arrested at the end i mean like he, he is not it sort of sparks the conversations around like cancel culture. Like his life is relatively unaffected moving sure. forward. Yeah. He will continue to be able to work. Uh, you know, there may be future partners who are, he's able to keep all. Well, that's treating him like from. a real person, which he isn't. But in the movie, we are meant as the audience to be like, yeah, fuck that guy. Like sure. watch, watch him, watch his life like fall down. And I'm like, okay, but all the things you're saying are true. If you think a second beyond the movie, which is what the, not what it's built to do. Yeah. Like as a debut movie that's like being written and directed by a single woman, this is astounding. A as single a single a, a, a one person. A one woman. A one person. No. One, <laughs> one woman. One woman one was able to do this. Promising young uh, woman. <laughs> Science told us that at least five women would have well, to Well, I thought he was just implying move, that, that one woman that it was won. more impressive because Emerald Fennell is in this in this uh, following this logic, not in a relationship. But which, oh, I don't oh know, no, I that's that. whatever. What I meant to say is, as a debut, I guess I yes. could just leave it there. It's amazing. It is a as, very confident and like. Like even though I think that it like it it's has slick. it's yeah. it's slick and I I think it's it's like I said its worlds don't mesh and I was thinking about Palm Springs which we talked about on our, our top ten which like sets up mm. this really weird skewed reality but it's just is very strict about it and everything feels of a piece and I think Promising Woman doesn't get there but like every like I think someone else said at the beginning like every single thing you know how it fully in control of the movie that she wanted to make it she is um, mm-hmm. which is a really fascinating thing to behold when you're watching a first movie. I think she just has a really pop sensibility. I think she'll make really mainstream movies in the future. And this one just went full force in so many different directions and some serious meaty uh, material that maybe didn't I mean, totally align with that. It reminds either. me a little uh, bit of, I was just listening to you guys talk about this. Like to be crowd pleasing about no, this. But it was like, <laughs> there's something, Whoa. something about the way the language that we use to describe her debut and the terms that we're replying to it is not dissimilar from how I would have described something like uh, Sam Levinson's assassination nation, which is a movie I've been thinking a lot about with mm. uh, Malcolm and Marie coming up. And I have to review that this week and so on. Uh, he's the guy who made euphoria also. And, you know, I think that same pop sensibility, that same splashiness uh, is evident in both their movies. But there's something about how Emerald Fennell wields it, where even where I think she misses the mark, for me anyway, still fills me with more confidence. That It feels less 
well, Sam Levinson feels like a provocateur. Yeah, I mean, like he's being he's being extreme to like yeah. jar you, and she's being extreme to like get. But you that's such an interesting up. point, though, because like this, I think there are some who would watch this movie and think that it's a provo- provocation, and maybe she's even used that word to describe it. But to me, as provocative as it is, it doesn't feel like it exists to you know, get under my skin. It doesn't open with trigger warnings like Assassination Nation did and not trigger warnings in a sincere right. sense, but, you know, as a, uh, it meant, meant to rile you up. And, um, yeah, there's, some, it, it does feel like there is a deeper, deeper sort of moral fiber and, um, uh, maybe it's the anger that coalesces into this movie that, that elevates it above something like Assassination Nation in my mind and makes me more optimistic about her career as a filmmaker than I was about his. It also just puts, a woman on screen doing so many different things that we rarely get to mm-hmm. see, <laughs> like uh, that a mainstream movie wouldn't al- a revenge thriller or even a rom com of a certain modern sensibility. Like promising one young woman is feels like a, a big attempt to just do all the things that that uh, from the female perspective you'd want to see in a movie, and she kind of puts it all out there. And on that level, it's it's thrilling, it's provocative, but it may not come together. But it still it still feels like a vision. Yeah. Katie, I was going to say, well, you should have the last word. But then oh, you just said boy, I just said, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Do I you got... have any more? <laughs> You're a promising uh, young right. woman. Oh, what do you I'm think? So young. Um, yeah. I, 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 You're young. I'm glad You're that we're young. all on the same page on this because I know it in this, like, I don't know that I've seen anyone who's, like, completely trashed. I think everyone who sees it knows that it's got a lot going on. But I'm glad we're all pretty on the same page about where it succeeds and where it doesn't. And everyone should watch it and see for themselves. Yeah, it's worth seeing. Wasted all day killing all the Capulets! Find a new face, dirty heart's namesake! Keep that set straight, Holly on the DK! I have a I have a recommendation on Hulu in honor of the two year anniversary of Vox Lux. Brady We've all Corbett's... been celebrating, right? You got your cake. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everyone has their Vox Martin Lux. Martin Luther King uh, Day has been replaced out. by a Vox Lux appreciation <laughs> yeah. day. Silver masks. Um, yeah, Vox. I wanted to talk a little about Vox Lux, a movie I finally caught up with that came out in 2018 during Stars Born Fever. Certainly was completely overshadowed. I think not the pop star. Uh, dramatization that uh, caught a nation's eye back in 2018. Caught no one's eye, actually. It really did not make a lot of money at the box office, uh, despite being led by Natalie Portman, uh, playing a Lady Gaga-esque figure. You'd think that that would just draw tons of people out of curiosity. No, no one has seen this movie. Luckily, Katie and David have seen this movie, and we're going to talk about it just a little bit because I have one big question. Um, but the setup here... I don't want to talk about it too much because if you've never seen Vox Lux, there's so much to be surprised by. Certainly when we talk about uh, provocateurship, Brady Corbett is out to get under your skin, maybe in the more Sam Levinson way versus the... (laughs) <laughs> way. Um, but you know Brady Corbett the, true, true Brady Corbett does not have Sam Levinson's uh, need to be liked uh, <laughs> that is for sure this movie is not to be liked or, or he, he is ready to shake you up um, the movie opens with a school shooting uh, there are other terrorist acts throughout the film uh, just as a trigger warning it, but it's just like a very abrasive experience yeah 
yeah, this is it's an extremely austere film. Maybe Kubrickian might be the right description of some of the the framing and the 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 way the drama plays out. The long story short here is that uh, it's kind of it's a two act film where you see uh, Natalie Portman's character Celeste as a thirteen year old growing up in Staten Island. There's that this school shooting, and she writes a song after that to kind of reflect on the moment. And that song, as Willem Dafoe puts it, as the narrator, uh, simply it was a hit, <laughs> um, <laughs> and it blows up, and she becomes Gaga level stardom. Uh, and this is all happening in like the year 2000, despite Sia writing the songs and the songs not sounding at all. And there was like, a lot of debate about whether 2000. or not the songs were intentionally bad. No, the songs are good. That's, that's my hot take here with Vox Lux. See, I had forgotten about <laughs> that debate for the uh, Lady Gaga there. butt song from Star is Born. Yet again, an example sure. of Star is Born. <laughs> that song also is good, good song. too. All, of, all songs all are songs good. Are good. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, here's the thing. I'm throwing up another spoiler flag. If you haven't watched Vox Lux, I would recommend it. It's, it can be disturbing. It can. It's just a very provocative film. I'm not sure it's successful, but I would definitely recommend it to people who can handle that type of drama. Here's my question to Katie and David. Two years after Vox Lux came out, here's the, I'm amazed that I never heard about the You're ending. You're asking me to remember like, the ending. Nothing I remember there being a I'm, long... I, don't, don't worry. I will tell you what the ending is and you will and have she a sings a bunch of songs and I remember thinking, none of these songs are sticking with me. No, they're all good. They're Sia bangers. Um, yes, it's, it ends with a 13-minute concert where Natalie Portman tries her best to be Lady Gaga. She can't quite dance. This is definitely going to be the, the very end of the film. Sia, just you watch. <laughs> The very end of the film, Willem Dafoe comes back as the narrator and in the final minutes of the movie tells the audience that uh, Celeste apparently made a deal with the, with the devil. She got shot during the school shooting, died, and when she was dead, the devil asked her if she wanted to, to die and move on or live and be the most famous person in the world. And she chose to be the most famous person in the world. And then the movie what? ends. I don't remember this. And the whole thing, yeah. everything, everything, everything you see before that is completely recontextualized by the idea that Celeste may have actually made a Faustian deal to be the most famous. And you're taking player. this. My question to you guys literally. was going to be: Do you believe this? Yeah, is it a literal thing, or is Willem Dafoe just being poetic as the narrator of this film? I but mean, apparently, you two don't even. Is it possible this, moment, this was added after my play Toronto? Like, seriously, I don't remember this at all. I don't remember anyone talking about it at all. I mean, that would be a pretty <laughs> no, radical I, I think we addition have, uh, to the film's heard premiere. about that, but um, Vox Lux does not seem like the kind of movie that was uh, fucked with after a premiere, that it was like somehow not reflective of Brady Corbett's vision um, right. at first. I, I mean, my response to that is just, what's the difference? I mean, Faustian yeah. bargains were always metaphorical in well, nature, no matter how they were contextualized in the context of I the story. I think the difference is... That the film, I mean, when I was talking about this film with a, with a bunch of friends over the weekend, we people were kind of at a loss. Like, why are we seeing school shootings? Why are we talking about 9-11? Why are we seeing a Croatian beach be shot up by terrorists um, who are dressing up like Celeste oh, I forgot about that part concerts? Too. And the whole point of the movie is that uh, she she is a, she's pretty Christian at the beginning of the movie, and she gives it up at some point in her pop career and she talks about in a press conference how she is like she's the new god like stop people should stop worshiping their gods and start worshiping her and there's this whole idea that like people are getting famous from creating false idols whether it's terrorist attacks or pop music idols and the idea that she literally made a deal with the devil 
I think leans really hard into the religious aspects of this bonkers movie that no one saw. And I'm just like, I want to talk. I, about I think that's probably that's probably the most interesting you know poll you can take from that so-called re- re- revelation at the end of the movie that it does sort of resonate with the religious implications of the start of the film. Um, I think part of whatever Brady Corbet was was trying to do with this is known only. Is it really Corbet? Uh, yeah, I was about, I was about to ask that. I should know the answer to that question uh, because is he Canadian? No, uh, his mom is my HR manager what? at work. Uh, yeah, and uh, she's a very, uh, very lovely woman, and I should know. And I think at the time I did know uh, exactly, like the for sure, the right pronunciation and. Vox Lux, it's still raising. <laughs> no, and I think <laughs> two years later. I, I honestly, I can't remember. It's a coin flip for me. But uh, I do Don't know worry, two things. One is that on the Wikipedia page for this movie, it says Corbet slash Corbett has discussed the challenges of making the film, saying that, in quotes, nobody asked for it and he did not make any money from it. Bold. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, two is that his partner, Mona Fassfold, is a filmmaker also, and her upcoming movie starring Vanessa Kirby and... Um, uh, not Dakota Johnson. Catherine Watterson is uh, called The World to Come and is excellent. Oh, it's going to be a Sundance. Uh, yeah, it was at a Venice last year and is coming out in February and is really, really great. And I think Brady Corbet is, is a really interesting filmmaker. His first film, um, uh, the name of which is escaping me right now, um, Child, Child of a Leader, had this killer Scott yeah. Walker score and is also like an out there, wacky, super abrasive movie. But Really interesting and unlike anything else anyone else is doing. And you can sort of glean the kind of movies that he's interested in making based on the filmmakers with whom he's worked. Um, from you know from the films he's been in, he's Haneke, Von Trier, with, uh, Simon Killer, etc. Um, this film lines up with yeah. that. And, you can and even though like Vox Lux <laughs> was apparently budgeted $11 million and earned all of $1.4 million at the box office, uh, he is... Feels like a lot, honestly. <laughs> I can't believe this didn't crush in like France. Um, <laughs> he is he is on his way to uh, making another movie, so uh, he'll be okay. That's great. You know, uh, Natalie Portman. The whole thing I think for this movie was to to put some Oscar hopes on Natalie Portman, which is totally the correct play for getting a movie like this into the black. But uh, that didn't pan off. Her performance is wild. Uh, yeah. <laughs> She has a very thick Staten Island accent, and it is a choice. Choice. Is it an authentic Staten Island accent? I don't know enough about Staten Island. The takeaway from this segment is that Patches is ahead of the curve, and I think this movie, not necessarily a positive, a positive uh, revisitation uh, necessarily, but like it, it will be a movie that I think small pockets of people talk about very fervently. 10 years from now. That's that's probably the right call. Although I would say that if you are feeling at all squeamish about school shooting, and if not, why aren't you? Uh, brace yourself. The movie movie opens we, we, and it is... My wife and I knew it was coming, and it was still one of the most shocking things that we've awful. ever seen. It is an so. awful thing to sit through and experience. And uh, Although as someone I was talking to noted, like we a lot of books, uh, especially in the last five or six years have de- have written in, in detail about like school shootings, especially in YA settings. Um, there's a lot of books that are confronting something that happens a lot in this country. Well, we don't see it in movies that often and not in a frank way, but I guess Marvel movies don't usually have school shootings in them. So there aren't a lot of shout out to the pandemic. Fewer mass shootings, shootings lately. Well, that's, that does speak to my uh, solution to school <laughs> shootings, which is to put a Spider-Man in every high school 
Uh, oh, I thought you were going to uh, say to let COVID last oh, yeah. forever so that we don't have mass shootings. <laughs> I feel uh, like that's there are I pivoted. No, no one's holding that uh, wishing stone from Wonder Woman. Already. <laughs> I am the wishing stone. Okay, moving on. <laughs> Talking about uh, young women a lot on this episode. What a fascinating yeah. combo. That's great. We're progressive. Okay, Katie, just to kick off this segment, on a scale of 1 to (laughs) 10, 10 being they need to be in court tomorrow and 1 being let it go. How urgently do the creators of Lost need to sue Sarah Stryker, the creator of The Wild? Oh, I don't know. I the mean, correct answer is seven. Is we were looking wild. for seven. Oh, okay. Seven. I mean, but like court is implying that there is something and it like, I don't know, maybe Dave would have more interesting opinion on like when your art belongs to you. I mean, the structure. The, we're talking the about the wilds, is... which is, so we decided, like, hang, on, hang, with, on, hang on, hang on. I'm just saying this, it Please. should open with like a disclaimer legally of some kind. It is that, it is that uh, explicit. We're talking but, about yeah. the show, the wilds. Hello to the listeners who are still listening to this. Uh, we've decided in 2021 for a while, at least uh, we're going to try to talk about things that we've all seen and we get to assign each other things. And I had watched two episodes of the wilds. We talked about it on little gold man last month. And then I decided to make these guys watch more of it. Uh, definitely in part because Dave has been doing a Lost Rewatch project for years now. And uh, yes, the show is a lot like Lost. It is not just about a bunch of people who survive a plane crash and wind up on a mysterious desert island. Every episode has a different flashback structure to a different character. There is a kind of mysterious larger force guiding everything they do on the island. Although I do think what's interesting about the Wilds is that it reveals much more about that what that larger force is much earlier. Um, partly because I guess they mm. knew what it was from the start so of the show. So far, that's my biggest misgiving about the show. So we'll get interesting. there. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean... L- it made me think a lot about how television has changed since Lost was on the air and how like this is like a 10 episode run on Amazon. They've been renewed for a second season, but, you know, they were able to kind of map out a plan, whereas Lost premiered. and They're like, I don't know, Smoke Monster, you'll never find out. And then, you know, five years and many network um, meddlings later, later they did. Um, I don't know. I've watched six full episodes. I know Dave has watched the whole thing. We've all watched varying levels of it. So, we're, you know, try not to spoil the show itself. But. I did get sucked in, despite, like, I don't usually have a lot of time in my life for, like, non-assigned viewing. And I guess in some ways I made an assignment. But, like, (laughs) it does feel like the exact level of, like, attention and, like, intrigue. Some good performances, some not great performances. Um, I don't know. Like, in in some ways, maybe it's just, like, feels like a lost rewatch, but something new, which is exactly what I was in the mood for. So maybe that's where the uh, the intellectual (laughs) property theft really pays off. Was there there a moment in... Either the first episode, or what, what was the moment you got sucked in? Oh. Like, was there something specific about the show where you're like, okay, I'm in, I'm gonna keep watching. I mean, this. I, you, when you start the first episode with like a like literary minded like teen girl who thinks she's smarter than everyone in her high school, like obviously that's gonna speak my language from the start. Although I did not ever sleep with a thirty year old mm. novelist. I want to be clear about this. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, have you fucked your favorite? No, novelist? there's a lot more sex on this show that all of them have in flashbacks than ever in my high school experience, just to be clear. Um, but, you know, it's television. Um, I, like, I, like just the fact that all the, what they established about all these girls, like maybe, I can't remember in the second, is the second episode the one 
about the diver? The um, yeah, like yes. her episode is really good. Her sister is played by Helena Howard, who we know from Madeline's Madeline. So obviously, I'm curious what she's going to get up to. Oh. Yeah, I was like watching her, being like, "Hang on, I know this person." She's definitely the best actress maybe in the show. So I that's think she like, and the girl who played her sister are both really good. Um, and you know, a lot like it is melodrama. Like there's a lot of just like big oh feelings, big speeches, like <sighs> big teen emotions. Yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it is hard to go back to. I, but I, not I think that, I'm like, looking for in my the life. ideal audience for this seems to be like this seems to be a perfect transitional show, perfect transitional content for people who are a little bit too old for like Twilight ish YA, but not quite like teenage girls in particular who are not quite ready for, I don't know, you know. Whatever. Lost, like I, I mean, they're certainly ready for Lost if they're watching the Wilds, but um, you know, I mean, it just feels like uh, a when you when you get out of the tutorial and you're thrown into the the main world of the game, it feels like uh, Trent. This is the Shonda Land on, yeah, uh, oh, sure. Right, I don't know, but I feel like I feel like even with all the misgivings I have for the show, I feel like it's I can only guess. I can only go with my intuition on this, uh, but it, I feel like it serves its target audience very well. But I and also that, wonder if the target audience is not me. I mean, not to be self-centered about it, but like thinking about the Babysitter's Club, which I raved about all of last year, like obviously it's made for teen girls to watch, but like very specifically nostalgia for women my age. And I feel like the wild, it's not nostalgia exactly, but like fitting a similar thing being like, it's like lost, but like also like your high school. But the one thing that pulled me away from that is how prescriptive the writing is. It's very mm. much like, you know, are their lives on the island uh, are not so dissimilar, it turns out, from their lives in yeah. the wilds. What's the real wilds? Is it the going through high school in America? Yeah, the first it, episode leans you know. heavily on that to a degree that you're like, okay, guys, I know. Right, I and know. every it following that lost like formula where you know all of their lives were sort of building up to a head before they came to the island, and they all had this melodramatic situation that was happening, um, and something that they need to get away from. Their parents were all sending them away to this retreat. Um, or the, whatever, not a retreat. It's probably not the right word for it. But nah, uh, I think they call it a retreat. They call it a retreat, flashback, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, it, it just it feels like the show is constantly diagnosing these girls with what's going on in their lives and the various anxieties they have about being teenagers in the modern world. And it's so consistently telling us and telling us and telling us about what these people are going through and, and how the island is going to uh, engage them to challenge their issues with themselves that they never actually get to be people. <laughs> like they're constantly, I think Leah, the main character in the first episode is the, the closest to a fully fleshed human being in the six episodes I've seen so far. Um, but the rest of them are really sort of, defined by just a handful of small elements that between voiceover and this really infuriating structure where they're cutting between the before times on the island and also these interviews with uh, people presumably after they've gotten off the island. It's very confusing um, structure. Which, I mean, it's... Uh, it's uh, <laughs> quote, like, unquote. Uh, you know, six episodes in, Dave, Dave used we don't there. know um, <laughs> the circumstances under which they're being interviewed and it's just another opportunity for them to tell us about themselves. It's very and prescriptive we, is, a, is a good word for it. We just don't really get a sense of them being real people. They all feel like YA constructs who are thrust into a world where both the YA rules are more applicable than ever, but also they're meant to be graduating into this different kind of adulthood. And so it all kind of feels not authentic to me, but I think that if I were feeling these things myself, if I had not been in the wilds of the real world for you know, however many years I've been, and, and also not a girl, 
I, I think if I were a 15 year old girl, this would all resonate with me really strongly and not in a way that I mean to be patronizing. I think this all probably speaks to those experiences really in a visceral way, but it also but don't you want to know what's going to happen? Like, does it not resonate yes, with you? I'm yeah. definitely so, watching okay, the rest so of the season. So this is what I'm saying. It's like, <laughs> oh, even oh, though wait, it feels wait, sorry. Personal. My last thing, my very yeah, last thing based on a comment that I made to you earlier is that the biggest, the biggest thing that pulled me out of it in the first episode and, and ever since is this woman who is running the Dawn of Eve program. Rachel Griffiths? Um, yes. Uh, everything about her character. There's like no menace. There's, there's not a single part of me that believes She's just on the job. I there's just nothing about her or her little ramshackle operation with her unpacked boxes and her like uh, chiseled male interns and their window screen that they're watching. I liked that, that production design. I like that set design. Like they just have boxes it all feels like they haven't really set up the office. Uh, like yet. part of the suspense for me to continue watching it is I I'm so eager to see what kind of explanation they come up to satisfy this. In a, like can they pull this off in a way yeah. that that makes me regret thinking that. I don't buy into any of this um, because for right now, as I said, six episodes in, uh, it just all feels like really like that element of it all feels really ersatz lost, but without any of the menace that I think maybe you get when you don't know the answers. I mean, maybe when you have smoke monsters and hatches and all that bullshit, because the writers are as enamored by the mystery of it all because they don't have the answers that that bleeds over into the audience's experience here. I don't know what answers Sarah Stryker has or doesn't have, but it, none of that element of it is filling with me with mystery. I only, I, I, I want to know sort of a glutton for punishment, the answers. It's not a genuine suspense for me, but mm. all right, I'll stop. All right, I want to hear from Dave as the lost expert uh, on this panel. Uh, yeah, it's a lot like Lost, but what Lost has and what YA fiction that <clears throat> I have uh, enjoyed in the past has uh, is uh, like a science fiction element that the wilds does not have. Mm. Um, uh, we are seeing people doing things uh, to people uh, to you know see how they react or to like modify their behavior. And because of that, I think the series does a really good job of lost like uh, pulling some double reversals on characters as uh, they progress. So David said you're at, at like episode six and Katie, you said you're around there too. Yeah. There's at one point, uh, I think in one of the episodes you guys have coming up where Gretchen will lay out uh, what she thinks is actually happening. Which one's Gretchen? Uh, Rachel Griffiths. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the, the mastermind. mastermind. She will. She will lay it out, and I think at that point you either are going to have to decide to get on board because you like you're curious about these particular girls, or just be like, oh, n- okay, because yeah. it, that's that's where it went left. Uh, it it decide it defined itself for me because mm. it could have been here's we got to keep away from the smoke monster or we got to yeah. you know we got to uh, do this time loop or like you know i am that blonde girl or you know something sci-fi that'd be like whoa mystery box show but yeah. instead it's like a character social based thing which puts it a lot more in like a uh, like a ya sort of like high school drama sort of thing it it gets so close to being uh 
actually dystopian with the idea of this, you know, company that can do these things to people, uh, but sort of doesn't go completely there. And then I think also gets completely close to being like, this season is going to be a contained story that is saying one thing, but then towards the end, in order to keep the mystery balloon afloat, uh, some of the things that I thought were strong character conclusions sort of get, uh, you know, reshuffled for, I think, what uh, is supposed to be like a season two. Yeah, they got renewed for a second season, so. Yeah, so I think there's... uh, It is very much like Lost, and I think having having (laughs) rewatched Lost... Uh, having been rewatching Lost recently, like a lot of it is as smart or as dumb, however you want to define it, as the Wilds. They're pretty much, you know, like um, there's char- a lot of dumb character stuff on Lost. There's a lot of dumb character stuff on Lost. There's a lot of, um, but a lot of that dumb character stuff on Lost was actually happening on the island. No, I feel no, like no. The balance of island to backstory. No, that's not true. Like, uh, the, there's a lot of really? uh, assumptions in Lost that are based on they don't have enough time with the character. So, Charlie's sto- backstory is always about drugs. They never figured out how to do a Charlie story that wasn't about drugs because drug addict was like his thing, and they had trouble developing it. And Ana Lucia was a cop that accidentally shot somebody, and they like didn't really know what to do with like that sort of story. All of these characters are on the island for a very specific reason. And as you find out more about them, it's very obvious that these people knew much more about their characters before going into putting them on the island. On the wilds. On the wilds, yes. Yeah. So it's more interesting to me to see how they're all interacting on the island because that's where I think a lot of the good character reversals are. Where you don't... And I'm saying I want more of that. I'm more of the... Like, I don't feel like they do enough stuff on the island in this show. I don't know if it's just because they didn't have enough time to shoot stuff on the island. But, like, they don't spend a lot of time... I thought it was weird that three or four episodes in, they're, like, maybe building a shelter. It's crazy that they spend so much time on the beach. Like, they... Yes. They, like, huddled under a tarp on the beach And then they find a cave and they're like, ah, sand fleas, we're out of there. And it's like, oh, guys, like, you need shelter. Like, think this through. Yeah, what the fuck? Like, where's food coming from? that one of the characters has an encyclopedic memory of survivalist TV shows. It almost... That was funny. It almost seems like there's a mole planted amongst them. (laughs) Mm. Well, there is a shot... There is a shot that... I maybe I got the context wrong for it, but it's like in the third episode and you don't have to say anything to this to correct me, but there's like a shot of one of the girls sitting by a vending machine and the way that it's cut, it feels like it's on the island and she's like getting the the Takis for them to to eat. And uh, I was sort of half watching and maybe that's uh, maybe that is giving something takis away. Takis grow on the yeah, island. Well, I, it was I hard mean- to figure out if Takis was... Like paid product placement, if they were going to be happy, the Takis Corporation is going to be There's, happy with uh, this or not. Rachel Griffith's character. This all feels very. <laughs> this so all feels very authentic, except for little spikes like Takis and pink. Where I'm like, does this mean I'm old, or is that actually inauthentic things that have been stuck snuck into this series? Anyway, it's been like Takis. That's- Kids love no, Takis. I know, but I the fact Takis. that we'd say that, or then like the the, <laughs> the character and like. The, the characters in the first episode have, like, a touching moment around one of their injured uh, co-people around, you know, like, Pink's kind of iconic. And yeah. I'm like, is that is that the show telling me that? Or is that something that, like, all teenage girls feel like? I, I, I don't know if I'm old or if that's an anachronism. Yeah. But, 
that's also not the last time that the show brings up pink so yeah there's a bunch of pink references um katie let us kind of on that same note i was curious for you if you felt like the show had something interesting to say about the teen girl experience um yeah i mean i'm not like a big reader of ya and i haven't watched a lot of shondaland so i like there's it's very likely that like other things in a similar genre has said things like this but i just like the idea of a teen show that kind of approaches these women it's like from a base level of like they are smart they are nuanced they are coming from different realms like it's and what like the, the, even that it says explicitly from the beginning that like the real pressure on them is out in the world and I think their flashbacks bear that out so the idea of having them all thrown into the situation where they're kind of creating their own society and like it's kind of clear that was the entire point of it um, I don't know like it, like just the idea of like taking them for their types as David was saying but like really emphasizing their capabilities and what they can do outside of the world that has been like telling them that they couldn't like that's an argument for all girls schools that people say all the time like you get away from a lot of the patriarchal bullshit of society. Um, and I think, I think there's an element to that in this that I'm enjoying watching too. Yeah. I think like the, the opening character, Leah, who has the relationship with the 30 year old novelist, they come back to that a lot. And a lot of like the Leah storyline throughout the season is, is she like doing this to herself or are people constantly gaslighting her into telling her she's making bad decisions? Mm. And like the smartest thing the series does is the second she starts the relationship with that dude, I'm like, I know where this is going. This is gross. But then you have to sit in all these very romantically staged and shot flashbacks where she is genuinely in love with this person and it makes you kind of like want to gaslight the character as the audience member, which like, you know, puts you into it. I think the series really is smart enough to do some of those things. Unfortunately, it's also a mystery box show. So my hope is like in season two, a lot of the flatter characters or some characters that don't get a lot to do towards the end of this season um, didn't, you know, come back. I think they um, also the, the character of Fatten, who is like Leah's classmate and kind of like the the spoiled rich girl who has all the clothes and is like kind of the biggest pain in the ass. She's certainly the Shannon of uh, of this lost knockoff and her flashback. I was kind of <laughs> bracing for her flashback, me like here's her tragic backstory, like here's her like hidden depths. But like it it didn't do exactly what I thought it was going to be. I think it was more interesting than that. Like making it, it's not just like immediately being like you think she's a bitch, but actually she's nice, or like you think she's quiet, but actually she has hidden depths. It was it was more. It took more of a left turn. So I was I'm excited to see who else they might do that with. Yeah, I think they you know they the the episodes do a good job of establishing who the girls are, and I think the season does a good job of providing uh, you know fun surprises within that. Uh, do the episodes hold together in a single thing like some really good uh, lost episodes? No, but it's a binge series, and it's a binge mystery box series. It's a long one though. It, I will. It feels long. I have to lay into the criticism here. It's like ten episodes. They're almost all an hour, and so there's certain quirks of the show that I think would go down easier for if I were younger. Like we were saying, like maybe this is the perfect show for a 16 year old girl. Um, but when I'm listening to people be like. I think in episode three, there's some voiceover that's like, oh, it, it's it's exactly what you think it is. It's it's teen comedy clicks here at high school. And sometimes you just have to be the nobody to be a, to 
run under the radar. I'm like, oh, stop. Like, so many pop culture references and so much awareness of teen tropes in this show. That that stuff grates on me mm. a lot. But I'm sure if you're not, if you haven't watched a dozen I, uh, stories in the same I just, mode, I think you wouldn't be as P.O. Because they're trying to do so many different things on the show, you don't get a sense of how the girls, at least at first, are behaving on the island you don't get a sense as you do on lost that like their number one item on their agenda is survival i mean because we're so pulled between the interviews at the end and the problems before the island and they're they're getting into these arguments already and some of them have pre-existing dynamics that they bring with them to the island that and and you're trying to figure out how they got there were they drugged on the plane because that plane didn't crash uh they wouldn't have all survived etc and like you don't get a sense of of like, what are they doing on a minute to minute basis to get by uh, and survive? I mean, it just feels like the hierarchy of needs is a little out of whack. Um, yeah, in I'm a not Lord of the, by that. In a Lord of the Flies sort of way. No, because like, I think that like that, as we see in later episodes a little bit more, it's the, the need to survive that organically leads to the drama and the friction between the characters. But I think in this show, sometimes they put the friction first and then sort of reverse engineer problems with survival and that it all feels really artificial to me. But I do want to point out that, like there's some really interesting directors. Uh, the, one of the episodes is by Haifa Al-Mansur. Um, that, yeah. Who is a? She made um, the Perfect Candidate last year. She made the Mary Shelley movie and then Wajda in 2012. Uh, she's a really interesting filmmaker. There is also Sydney Freeland, who is a transgender Navajo filmmaker who directed Deidre and Lainey Robert Train in 2017, uh, and then she's worked in TV a lot since then. Oh, but um, she did Drunk yeah, Town's Finest, did. didn't she? I've, I've yeah. interviewed her. She's fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, so there are cool. It's actually. It's funny for such a female-driven show that it seems the the person who directed the most is a guy named John Polson, whose work I don't know. But um, the show looks great. Yeah, like I mean, it's all shot even on the, the island looks fantastic. But even the high school stuff, it's like it's a real show. It's a real yeah. show. And also shout out to it's like I think they filmed in New Zealand. Like it's they on did. an island, so like they have like a lot of girls wearing sweaters. Like it's not an excuse to have them. I think it's a smarter show than that. But like I again think of Shannon in her bikini on Lost, like letting them like be clothed is really it nice. It does not, um, you know, unless I'm missing obvious signs, it does not feel prurient for me. I mean, it does not feel like it is accommodating the male gaze. It, it does truly feel like it is aimed at that teenage girl audience. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, New Zealand gets you a lot of production value uh, for sure. And you like um, the idea that I think Patches floated when we came up with this last week. If uh, Matt Patches had also crashed on this island with all these girls and how he would, oh, uh, he would have gone but and it, hidden on the other <laughs> side of the beach immediately. The weather is interesting. Actually, this group of girls, I feel like I would have made some allies. No, they, they would have literally eaten you for dinner. A white man! <laughs> no, but you know what it is? It's like the, the thing about the Lost and the Mystery block Box. Like, they're trying to do the Mystery Box here, but they keep fumbling it. There's an episode... There's a moment in an episode where they have to dig up a grave and they dig up the grave and they find that the body that they put into the grave is not there. But the way that that scene is shot is so odd because in like a lost, for example, it would be like they dig and they dig and then they get there and like, dun dun, there's no body. And it'd be like lost. Uh, And in this one, it's like they dig and then they just sort of cut to them just like sort of sitting by the side and being like, huh, I wonder where the body went. And it so doesn't jive with the mystery box of it all in a way that like, they'll talk about the weather. Like Katie was saying, there's a comment that a character makes about like, wow, it's so hot here, but there's this breeze. And I'm like, okay, are they in like an, 
a Truman Show like ecosphere. Like what's <laughs> happening here? And and but like it, none of it is ever pronounced enough where you get it in one way or another. It feels like it's trying to have it all. Um, and I wanted a little more Castaway and a little less. Yeah, it'll go one way or the other. <laughs> um, and maybe it gets there towards the end of the season. We'll see. I am definitely interested in watching the rest of it. So it definitely goes more lost and less Castaway towards the end of the season. Yeah, I'm interested in how they'll do a season. I'm interested two. Well, again. Like this season felt so clear long. Pretty clear by the end of this season <laughs> where they're going. Patches. Uh, maybe I'll have a spoiler segment on the Wilds in a week or two. Um, <laughs> anyway, watch watch the Wilds. But also, if you were thinking about watching a show about teen girls, maybe don't want the cynicism or the mystery box. Uh, again, the Babysitters Club. Watch it's on Netflix. <laughs> it's it's, it's great. Thinking about. Uh, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter, at least before the inauguration. I don't know how it's all going to go down. I might have to quit. Um, but you can find me at Mr. Patches, M-I-S-T-E-R-P-A-T-C. And, uh, yeah, well, you can find us, fightinginthewarroom.com, where all the episodes live, and you can listen to them and I think uh, oh well I was going to say that we, last week we mentioned linking to David's uh, GoFundMe page and but now it's probably too late. Uh, yeah but by the time job, this David. episode comes out <laughs> I will have uh, ended. We will not have a link to I've that. Ended the fundraiser. If you happen to listen to the show and did donate uh, thank you. Thank you so much. The fundraiser was uh, very successful. We hit our goal in just a couple hours and uh, there'll be another one next year I suppose because it turns out I'll be making another video but if you are hearing this and you did donate uh, the biggest and most sincere thank you am I doing my thing now? yeah I think so Sure. Oh, uh, hi I'm David uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich I'm at IndieWire who I'm really getting into Sundance mode now although you won't see the results of that for a couple weeks um, find us all on, on iTunes finding, find, fi, fighting 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 in the War Room. Uh, leave us a review. We'll read it on the show. It's great fun. And I'm David the Seven. You can find me on Twitter at DA7E. You can also hear me on The Storm, a Lost Rewatch podcast. We're in season five, which is literally skipping around through time. So the oh, it's hit, a good season. The good Wilds. Season. The Wilds. I totally knew what, what time period I was in. <laughs> does, does that girl still have her left hand? All right. I know where we are. All right. And uh, yeah. Go check it out. The Star Velocity Watch Podcast. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com on the Little Goldman Podcast, where uh, this week we had interviews. We are talking about movies. I, don't, I can't think of anything specific to plug. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where obviously tell us if you watch The Wilds and uh, answer this week's lightning round question, which was... Name one of the top 10 movies of 2020 based on theatrical gross that was apparently actually released in 2020. Possibly not the best prompt for people to just tweet at us since they can just I use Punk's Office Mojo, but... Tweet your favorite. <laughs> I mean, if, you, your answer, if you have a favorite whatever. among any of these movies, please let us know. Just, just tweet, tweet at us. us. Uh, we'll probably... Uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. I'll tell you when I'm done. Wonder what you find, poopa poopa. Wonder what you find.
my fair lady. I'm done.